0: Black Doctors Podcast, Season Six. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Stephen, your host. Again, uh, once a month, I want to take an episode and really just talk about medical ethics. It's something that I'm passionate about, in addition to you know my clinical training as an anesthesiologist. If you're watching the video, you'll see I'm kind of in a more relaxed setting. I'm actually home for uh, Thanksgiving holiday and set up kind of a portable makeshift recording studio. So um, hopefully this sounds okay and I can do some magic in post-production to make sure that the quality remains the same. This week, I want to talk about when within the realm of medical ethics, there is autonomy, there's informed consent. I think one of the ways that it comes up very frequently in a major way is when Managing and working with Jehovah's Witness patients, patients that practice that faith. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. One of the key issues that comes up with this patient population is a patient's religious freedom and autonomy to refuse a treatment. And this autonomy conflicts with our commitment as physicians to provide beneficial care while avoiding harm. I want to stop and talk briefly about this concept of religious freedom. And, you know, why does our society put so much faith in religion, pun intended, faith in religion? I'm a Protestant Christian, but suppose a patient is faithless. Using their religious beliefs to support their autonomy sets a questionable precedent, at least in my mind. Suppose this patient doesn't subscribe to an accepted Western religion. Suppose the person is atheist or agnostic. Do they then have less autonomy because their medical decisions don't make sense and there's no religious backing? to their decisions. I remember back in medical school and my psych rotation where we had a patient from uh, the South Pacific and they were admitted inpatient psych and they kept talking about Bula Bula and these like kind of magical thinking was what the psychiatrist was um, kind of writing down and, and things weren't going well. I'm like, okay, this guy is getting worse and worse. But I went to undergrad with some Pacific Islanders, was some, I think they were um, Tongan, and I knew that they practiced or believed in kind of a black magic or like a roots, and I think it was called um, Bula Bula. I'm pretty sure this is like years ago. And I was able to kind of explain this and like, okay, this is the, the quote-unquote magical thinking. It's actually kind of part of their religion, part of their culture. So it's interesting to me when you start combining that religious freedom um, and putting that into the medical decision-making realm, how, if it's a religion that we're not used to in the you know, in Western medicine, will we put less stock in, in their belief system? The important thing with these patients, like with any patient, is that we must still provide patient-centered, unbiased, informed consent. Um, when we're consenting these patients and talking about the risk-benefits of surgery, anesthesia, other medical procedures, and treatments, you know, it's important to know does this patient still actively practice the Jehovah's Witness faith? If they don't, do they still subscribe to some of those beliefs? If the patient changes their mind regarding the acceptance of blood products, is this deviation secondary to a lack of decreased capacity due to their current illness? Are they, you know, choosing to accept blood product now because they are anemic and um, altered and, and have an altered mental status, or they're septic and have an altered mental status? If this current uh, acceptance of care is discongruous with their prior stated belief structure. You know, is there a role for an advanced directive or or for reaching out to a surrogate decision-maker, for example? We know that the refusal of treatment is protected. So the First Amendment and uh, the Constitution kind of guarantees religious freedom if we're lumping this in with religion. In 1914, there is the landmark trial of Schlonendorf Versus the Society of New York Hospital has established the right of a competent adult to determine the course of his or her own medical treatment. And in 1990, the United States passed the Federal Patient Self Determination Act, which required healthcare providers to inform patients regarding their right to determine the extent of care they receive and the right to have their decisions respected by healthcare personnel. We're going to jump into a couple of these issues in this episode of the podcast. We'll hopefully get some best practices of how we can provide the best care possible for this patient population. As we get started, well, you know, one of the things that kind of annoys and bugs me, especially being at a center that takes care of a lot of Jehovah's Witness patients, is the colloquialization of their, their religion and referring to them as JWs. I, I see it in my mind as kind of similar to sicklers you know, in regards to patients with sickle cell disease. It takes a little longer to actually say out the whole thing, but when you start to shorten that, you know, is it the the back end of that losing a little bit of respect for that person, for their disease process, for their religious belief? So I always make it a point to refer to them as Jehovah's Witness patients. That's that's the religion that they choose to believe in. And so I do my best to respect it. Just grinds my gears uh, when a little bit, a little irksome when people are like, "Oh, JW this, JW that." I don't know how Jehovah's Witness patients feel about that, but that's just my own personal belief that I try to enforce or, or practice when I am working with these patients. Let's jump a little bit into the history of Jehovah's Witnesses. Back in 1870, there was a Bible study group in Pennsylvania. Um, they believed in the literal interpretation of the Bible, except in cases in which it was in which it was obviously allegorical currently there is a governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses located in New York this is the global headquarters of Jehovah's Witness and has ultimate authority over all issues of doctrine now a lot of this information i got from a couple of different journal articles i did not kind of ping any actual Jehovah's Witness i had thought about bringing one on as a guest but i kind of wanted to see what information i could find from my own and just by doing kind of a literature review and looking online because that is going to be the information that you're able to find in the middle of the night when you're looking this up because you're presented with a Jehovah's Witness patient and extremis. So I wanted to see what had already been written, and I wanted to come into this a little bit naive so I could just kind of learn more as I went and then share that with you. So a lot of this information came from uh, Current Opinions in Anesthesiology. It was the April 2014 edition and a paper entitled Ethical Issues in the Care of Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a couple other papers, and if I remember at the time, I'll try to put them in the show notes. So again, uh, back in 1870 is when the religion was formed. Um, it wasn't actually until 1945 that a ban on blood transfusions was enacted. Um, this ban was based on a couple of quotes found in the Bible, and some of those quotes are Genesis 9-3, only flesh with its life, with its blood, you must not eat, End quote. Uh, Leviticus 17, 10 through 16. If any man of the house of Israel or any foreigner who is residing in your midst eats any sort of blood, I will certainly set my face against the one who's eating the blood and I will cut him off from among his people for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I myself have given it on the altar for you to make it dominant of yourself. Okay. More talk about blood. Then there's another verse, Acts 15, 28 through 29. I feel like I should use like the Samuel L. Jackson voice from, um, Pulp Fiction. In 1951, the Watchtower, which is kind of their, I guess, publication, there's an article that explained the reasoning that led to this ban on blood transfusions, that when sugar solutions are given intravenously, it is called intravenous feeding. Uh, blood transfusion is feeding the patient blood, and the patient is, quote-unquote, eating it through the patient's veins. Um, again, this was taken from that article in Current Opinions and Anesthesiology, And the author of that paper actually kind of corresponded with some of the elders of the Jehovah's Witness faith to get this information. Let's talk about some common misconceptions when it comes to this patient population. So it is a common misconception that if you give a Jehovah's Witness blood against his or her will, then they will be subject to eternal damnation. Another misconception is that if a Jehovah's Witness patient accepts blood, then he or she too would be subject to eternal damnation right so if you give it to them um against their will if they accept it they're subject to eternal damnation with no chance of repentance however neither of these is true this is again based on that paper from 20, 2014 um where this author actually emailed their lead office a uh, forced blood transfusion would not be viewed as a sin also, if under extreme pressure and while experiencing undue stress, a Jehovah's Witness was to compromise their belief and accept blood transfusions, in other words, if they caved in at a moment of spiritual weakness yet still held to their beliefs, the individual would not be ostracized by the Jehovah's Witness community, where their kindness would be shown and pastoral help would be offered. Nevertheless, a blood transfusion or a compromise with one's conscience may leave the patient with deep emotional scars. So I definitely didn't know kind of that side of things and and wasn't sure that that would, uh, that's how it will play out. I always heard, you know, it's an eternal damnation. In fact, since the year 2000, you are not disfellowshipped for accepting blood. You are considered to have voluntarily disassociated yourself from the church. This means that if you repent, you can remain within the fold. Over the years, there's been adaptations to keep up with advances of medicine, and they develop new guidelines regarding dialysis and cardiopulmonary bypass, and acute normal bulimic hemodilution, autologous blood donation. So normal bulimic when is when you, um, you know, dilute somebody's blood before surgery, and then you can draw off some of that blood and give it back to them later, which they can do for Jehovah's witness patients. You just have to take a couple of other precautions. Essentially, the blood has to, has to remain in circulation, so we're able to kind of rig up, um, we'll draw the blood off and leave it, connected kind of get to the patient's IV in some format, and then you kind of have a little rocker or whatever to make sure the blood doesn't clot, but... It is still in continuity with their body. A little timeline um, that this article actually included was in 1870. There's a study group that was formed. In 1879, they published the first issue of The Watchtower. It wasn't until 1901 that we discovered the ABO blood groups. Um, in 1931, they changed their name to Jehovah's Witness. And the first hospital blood bank of the U.S. was in 1937. In 1945 was when they banned transfusions. 1961, the role of platelet concentrates was defined. In 1961, it also became a disfellowshipping offense to receive the blood products. And in 2000, they changed to a disassociating offense. As of 2013, there were approximately 7.9 million members worldwide and 1.2 million members in the United States. With regards to Jehovah's Witness belief system, although these verses, as stated previously, are not stated in medical terms, The Jehovah's Witness um, believers view these as ruling out transfusion of whole blood, packed red blood cells, plasma, as well as white blood cells, and platelet administration. However, their religious understanding does not absolutely prohibit the use of components such as albumin, immunoglobulins, and hemophiliac preparations. Each Jehovah's Witness must decide individually if he or she can accept these. The question always comes up, what happens with minors? So, um, yeah, life-saving transfusions can be given against parental wishes. Um, acknowledging the, is important, right? In in real time for, you know, treating a patient or a child of a Jehovah's Witness, which I I have done, you know, you don't want to just say, Hey, yeah, I can transfuse your kid if I need to. No, you know, it's more of a conversation. Yeah, I'll do everything I can to respect your wishes, but, you know, for the health of the child, if, if you know, there's going to require a transfusion, then I am obligated to uh, provide the best uh, practice for the kid. And, you know, depending on the, on the surgery, if it's somebody taking off, you know, uh, if it's a frenulectomy or whatever, something minor, a skin tag, well, it's probably not going to come up. But if it's um, something that's more in depth, then, yeah, know, it's probably going to be a bit of an awkward conversation. But, you know, that's just the way it is. A lot of this is, is um, you know, professionalism and communication skills and how you're able to uh, navigate these challenging discussions. For moral reasons that oftentimes go beyond the issue of the risk of a transfusion, Jehovah's Witness parents often ask that therapies be used that are not religiously prohibited. And this is in accordance with our medical tentative treating the whole person. We want to try to observe the wishes of the family members. Um, I, if I needed to transfuse a minor, I would do it without hesitation. There is kind of a whole process that you can go through with the court system to obtain a court order and all this other stuff. And I feel like if the transfusion was that necessary and that acute, then you know you would have already transfused. But there is um, that when it comes to other issues like organ transplantation. So according to the Watchtower Society, which is a legal corporation for religion, Jehovah's Witnesses do not encourage organ donation, but believe it is a matter best left to an individual's conscience. All organs and tissues, however, must be completely drained of blood before transplantation. Um, Again, they believe once that blood has been removed from the body, it should be disposed of, so they don't typically accept autotransfusion of predeposited blood. Many Jehovah's Witnesses do permit the use of dialysis, and heart-lung equipment. These uh, systems are, are in continuous flow with the patient. Um, there's also a way to do kind of a cell saver where you're sucking blood off the surgical field and saving it, but keeping that in line with the patient as well. have done a couple cases like that back in residency. What about medical liability? We really shouldn't worry about that because when you're providing a thorough, informed consent, discussing the risk and the benefits, Number two, um, there's typically, you know, there's, there's paperwork and documentation that you can provide. The informed consent is a process and a conversation. It's not really a legally binding anything. It's not really meant to protect you in the court of law. However, what you document from your conversation is what's going to protect you. But no, you really shouldn't be worried about liability when it comes to these patients, especially when, you know, you've been clear that or they've made it clear that they would rather die than receive blood transfusion okay well they made it pretty clear when it comes to jehovah's witness patients and surgery so back in 1977 um Ott and coulier two surgeons out of texas i believe they reported on 542 cardiac surgeries performed on jehovah's witnesses without transfusing blood they concluded that this procedure
1: hey there i hope you're enjoying listening to the show I want to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn and thank them for sponsoring the Black Doctors Podcast. TrueLearn is a medical exam preparation company that helps you outperform on your boards. If you are a medical student or resident physician, you should definitely check out their products. If you sign up, please use the code BDPodcast and you'll get a discount. They have resources for both DO students as well as MD students and even physician assistants. When it comes to residency licensure, they offer question banks for over eight different specialties. TrueLearn gives analytics that give you insight into your study habits, your question responses, and tracks you along with your peers. Students and residents average 20% improvements after completing a TrueLearn smart bank. Check them out at TrueLearn.com. And again, remember to use the code DDpodcast to receive your special discount. Now back to the show.
0: without transfusing blood, concluded that this procedure, these procedures can be done with an acceptably low risk. They said the risk of surgery in patients of the Jehovah's Witness group has not been substantially higher than for others. Dr. DeBakey, the, the great world-renowned Dr. DeBakey, communicated that in the great majority of situations involving these patients, the risk of operation without the use of blood transfusion is no greater than in those patients in whom we use blood transfusion. The surgeons kind of added that the surgeon needs to establish a philosophy of respect for a patient's right to refuse a blood transfusion, but still perform surgical procedures in a manner that allows safety to the patient. Rather than considering these patients a problem, um, more and more physicians are beginning to accept the situation as a medical challenge. In meeting this challenge, they have developed a number of standard practices for this patient population, and this has been accepted at numerous medical institutions around the country. Um, these physicians are at the same time providing care that is best for the patient's total good. So one of the surgeons wrote, who would benefit if the patient's corporal malady is cured, right, their disease process is cured, but the spiritual life with God as he sees it is compromised, which leads to a life that is meaningless and perhaps worse than death itself. So we do it to these patients to basically do the best we can with their given constraints. See, it as a challenge. One study from uh, the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplant uh, is entitled Jehovah's Witness Patients Going the Extra Mile for Bloodless LVAD Implantation. And LVAD is a left ventricular assist device. Basically, it's a motor that takes over for the left ventricle of the heart. And what they found in that study was that it was actually published from some folks at the University of Chicago. They found that Jehovah's Witness Patients currently face barriers in the availability, appropriateness, preference, and timeliness of access to care. Jehovah's Witness Patients face unnecessary barriers in access to care, but they can be successfully operated on with the use of optimization protocols and open communication between the patient and care team. People talk about the ethics, however, of Jehovah's Witness transplants. It took me a while to wrap my head around it because, again, it doesn't make sense. this patient is not going to accept blood product, why should they receive an organ, a heart, a liver, a kidney transplant if they're not going to accept blood? Personally, I still think it's a bit discongruous, but if their faith permits them to receive an organ, um, you know, who am I to say that that's inappropriate? I would then defer to the organ transplant networks and the transplant surgeons and their 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 team. You know, they have a whole infrastructure in place to ensure that candidates um, have the best outcomes possible. So again, I defer to their judgment, and obviously there's plenty of centers that are doing Jehovah's Witness transplants so the ethics thereof, you know, are basically it boils down to two or, or a couple of ethical concepts and considerations. Should we not transplant Jehovah's Witness patients because the allocation of organs is is difficult? It's a limited resource and this will cost lives of other people who are not Jehovah's Witness who could have received these organs. Some would argue that these resources should be allocated to patients who will comply with the standard of care. Um, however, if we look at the back end of this, the outcomes data of Jehovah's Witness patients receiving transplants does not show a significant difference. Without any data or significant data to show that these precious resources are being risked due to quote unquote non-compliance or, or patient refusal of blood products, it is not quite ethical to refuse to include Jehovah's Witness patients on a waiting list for an organ. So basically, if we you know if a Jehovah's Witness, it's a heart transplant. And does just as well without receiving a blood product any blood products, than the next guy. And you know, you know why not? And then you know, a lot of surgeons will draw a line at maybe a, a redo heart transplant or a redo redo at some point. You know, if we know the patient's going to need blood or they know the patient's going to need blood to survive, then it doesn't really make sense to do this uh, surgery. What are some of the best practices for caring for Jehovah's Witness patients when treating these patients? Um, We want to remember that principle of respect for autonomy. It's not the only principle that we need to observe. We need to observe the principle of beneficence, right? We want to do good for all, even for patients with belief systems that we don't entirely agree with. um, We want to uh, do no harm. And sometimes uh, we need to ensure that justice is being provided and, and patients are being treated fairly. The ethical treatment of these patients include not only respecting their autonomy, but ensuring that they understand all of their options. We need to explain their options for, you know, blood products, blood substitutes, what's available at the institution. Can we do cell saver and keep that in circulation with the patient's blood? Can we do uh, hemodilution and autologous donation, you know, while keeping that in circulation with the patient? Can we manage them post-operatively? Maybe we don't get labs as frequently. Maybe we use uh, small pediatric tubes to send their lab work done. One of the big things that we need to ensure we're doing is protecting this patient's privacy, especially if they do elect to receive blood. And we need to honestly evaluate our own ability to treat these patients, given the constraint that blood refusal may put on yourself as the physician or care provider and the healthcare system. Is your hospital best equipped and set up? To provide care to this patient, um, do you have any moral opposition to not transfusing and allowing a patient to die in front of you? You know, I've, I've had uh, some attendees I've worked with before, or some some partners, and you know, it's important to kind of get these patients away from other family members, and then you know, readdress this informed consent, not in a coercive fashion, but hey, you know, just between us, this is our little secret. Um, patient-physician uh, privileged relationship. Do you uh, really not want to receive a blood transfusion at the risk of death? And then just seeing what the patient says when they're alone and can be completely honest and ensure that you know their privacy and their choices will be will be discretion will be used and and the information will not be shared. As physicians and from an ethical perspective, we need to demonstrate our respect for the autonomy of competent patients by accepting their informed decisions even when they refuse recommended treatments. It seems uh, self-evident that without respect for informed refusal, the concept of informed consent is invalidated. Consent would then merely be acquiescence of the patient to the physician's recommendations. In order to give a true informed consent, a patient must have appropriate decision-making capacity. They must be able to understand the nature of the procedure the risk, benefits, and alternatives, including that of doing nothing, and the probable outcome of both acceptances and refusal of the proposed procedure. In addition, the decision must be made free of coercion, and the coercion is present if the patient feels threatened, bullied, or subjected to irresistible pressure to make a decision that they would not otherwise make. A couple other issues that come up. So what is the role of a surrogate decision maker with these patients? So all Jehovah's Witness patients are encouraged to create and carry a durable power of attorney. that explains in detail what their beliefs are concerning blood and blood products. Obviously, these are oftentimes lacking a lot of the data that we would need, especially in times of emergency. So we'll typically, you know, in, when in doubt, we kind of revert to reasonable patient standard. I think that's pretty fair if it's not explicitly um, written out and if it's not uh, um A surrogate decision maker that is easily found that can reaffirm the patient's desires. Um, Depending on what you need to do, you do want to loop in hospital legal affairs if there's any confusion, or the organization's ethics committee may be helpful. And then there's local Jehovah's Witness hospital liaisons in some communities that are available. And www.jw.org is also a resource. Oftentimes, these patients have expressed their intentions, but while under anesthesia, the need for blood becomes more critical. So in this case, it's important to recognize the principle of substituted judgment, which says that surrogates are to make the same decision that a patient would make if they were unable to do so. Once the patient's wishes are known, whether physicians agree or not, those decisions should stand unless there's some new information that becomes available. It's inappropriate to continue to badger the surrogate to change that decision to one that is more uh, palatable for the physicians and healthcare providers. What is the physician's obligation? Because I, I am a strict uh, proponent of autonomy for patients, but I am just as um, supportive of the autonomy of physicians. Every physician has the autonomy to say, I do not do this. So I'm an avid supporter of autonomy for both physicians as well as the patients that we take care of. So when it comes to physician obligation, the American Society of Anesthesiologists at least has developed guidelines for the anesthesia care of patients with do not resuscitate orders. Or other directives that limit treatment. This would fall under that, right? You can't cure blood products. These guidelines kind of state that in a non emergent situation, anesthesiologists have the right to excuse themselves from a patient's care non judgmentally, as long as they're willing to refer the patient to another physician or healthcare provider in a timely fashion. This referral could even be to another medical center that has a developed expertise in caring for Jehovah's Witness patients. If the situation is truly a life or death emergency with no time for a referral, The anesthesiologist is obligated to care for the patient, trying as much as possible to adhere to the patient's wishes. However, if the anesthesiologist is concerned that he or she will not be able to comply with the patient's wishes, the patient or surrogate should be so informed. In non-emergent situations, you are entitled to be a conscientious observer. If you can find a replacement, if there are doubts about your obligation to the patient or to the child of a Jehovah's Witness, your hospital's ethics committee and or legal department should be consulted. This brings the concept of uh, I believe it's called uh, sin boldly. So that's totally fine, right? Because if your if your moral code and structure will not permit you to allow someone to die on the operating room table, um, you know, just say it is what it is. Ideally, you can have a partner or somebody that that will be able to fulfill those wishes, take over and provide that anesthetic, provide that medical care, whatever it is. I've had talks with colleagues and it's kind of been, I, don't, I didn't do any poll or anything, but just in talks like personally, if uh, a patient did not want to receive blood transfusions and would rather die on the operating room table, I have got no problem allowing that to happen. If that's their wishes, I fully support patient autonomy. I would try to discuss this with a patient in private and talk to them. Hey, are you sure about this? Cool. All right. It is what it is. Um, I've had partners that adamantly refused and would be like, yeah, if they're going to die without blood, I'm going to give them blood. So, you know, at the end of the day, you have to do whatever that, that will let you sleep at night and that you can know forever that you made the right decision based upon your own moral code. And one of the situations, I'll close with this anecdote and I'll change some uh, information for patient safety, for patient privacy. Um, at some point in my career, I was providing care for a Jehovah's Witness patient who had a very complicated pregnancy, requiring an operative delivery. And I remember, yeah, they of course came in middle of the night and we're scrambling, we're trying to get cell saver in place. We could, you know, rig this up so we can continue to save some of their blood. One of the goofs I I remember, like trying to get a large-bore IV in, because they, you know, in case they needed blood, because that's what we always did for these types of cases. And in retrospect, I'm like, well, we weren't going to give any blood anyways, but I guess we'd never know that anyways. I took a large bore IV, a 14-gauge IV, and I kept and I this IV in. Patient patient's sitting there. There's significant others sitting there. And somehow, like, my hands were full and tied up, and, and I, I couldn't hold the right pressure over this 14-gauge catheter. I'm going to let go, like blood just like gushed down this patient's arm. I'm like, oh my God, all this precious, precious, precious blood that we can't get back. And everybody was just like me, the patient, the patient significant other, just staring at this like geyser of blood. Anyways, we get that all sorted, take the patient back for their procedure. It was done under under neuractual anesthetic. So the patient was actually awake during the surgery and things are going, 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 and then boom, hemorrhage happened patient's bleeding out, blood pressure's low, they're hypotensive, you know, blood pressure is, I don't know, 60 over or whatever, and, um, well, before we we went back, one of the partners was like, you know, had this whole come to Jesus, or I guess come to Jehovah's, yeah, come to Jehovah moment, had him sitting there like, hey, if we don't give you blood, you, like, you would rather die, and the patient's like, yeah, and then it's like, are you sure, yeah, are you sure, are you sure, I'm like, well, like, this is kind of getting a little coercive in my opinion, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't quite the attending a record. So I just, you know, could only do so much. So a patient, you know, refused it multiple times. Surgery's going on, hemorrhage, hemorrhage, hemorrhage. The patient needs blood and the patient's awake, right? Cause it's an, under a neurological and the patient's sitting there like, nope, I don't want blood. And, uh, the partner, my partner was like, if you don't get blood, you're going to die. The patient's like, nope, I don't want it. As, uh, now this patient started to like kind of fade in and out of consciousness. So then. My partner goes and grabs a significant other, brings them to the room. And it was kind of one of those wild scenarios that happens in the operating room because before the significant other was in, like, you know, the blue gown and called blueberries, whatever they they were scrubbed out for the OR. Well, this time it's a little emergent. And so the person's just standing there in like street clothes with a bouffant cap on their head. And this person looks at their significant other, it's laying there on the table, awake and hemorrhaging. And my partner was like, tell them they need blood. Tell us it's okay to give them blood. I'm like, whoa, this is kind of wild. And as this person stares at their significant other laying there on the operating room table, they point at them and like, they, they don't want blood. And the patient looks up was like, yeah, I'm telling you, I don't want blood. And for me, that totally changed the way that I looked at Jehovah's Witness patients because you know my faith is not that strong. I would rather die than, you know, receive a blood transfusion or, you know, substitute that for whatever it is. So in summary, I mean, these are patients. um, These are patients with a belief system that we may or may not agree with. This isn't really different from any other patient that has a belief system that we may or may not agree with. And we should treat them as such with the utmost respect, um, take time to talk with them, figure out what they... Uh, what blood products they do or do not take, learn you know, what resources are available in your local area and how we can best provide care for this vulnerable patient population. What are your thoughts? What are your experiences? Have you ever taken care of a Jehovah's Witness patient? How do you feel about the JW versus Jehovah's Witness you know, in, in reference to these patients? And um, yeah, just what are your thoughts? What other ethical issues, dilemmas, situations would you, would you like me to discuss on the show? Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Black Darkness Podcast. We're here because representation matters. We're getting towards the end of 2022 and the end of season six of the Black Darkness Podcast. We're at over 160 uh, different episodes. You can go back and and check out a lot of our older stuff. And we'll start to kind of recycle and shuffle back some of the the classics and, and hits from days past. As we move forward into season seven, which we plan to launch in January of 2023, if you are interested in sponsoring the Black Letters Podcast, if you want to support the work that we're doing to increase diversity in the healthcare workforce, you know, drop us a line. You can visit our website, www.theblackdirterspodcast.com or um, stevenbradleymd.com. as my website. You can leave uh, a comment on the podcast. You can leave a message on social media it's the same uh, handles on instagram podcast and steam rep md uh shoot us a message love to hear from you leave a review follow the show like share all that good stuff but if you want to sponsor us get your name get your business get your product in front of our listeners we have over over 1200 weekly listeners weekly downloads and uh we'd love to share that audience with you and again we'd love to have your support so Reach out if it's something that interests you, and otherwise, tune in next week to another episode of the Black Daughters Podcast, because representation matters.